The next section is 1 John chapter 1, verse 5 through chapter 2, verse 2. And this is the first condition that one must meet in order to have fellowship with God. And the first condition is the renouncing of sin. The renouncing of sin. In this section, John first establishes what it means that Yahweh is light, a point with which the false teachers would agree. Then he presents a series of three claims that the false teachers make and three counterclaims that he asserts as true about one's relationship to Yahweh as light and one's fellowship with him. These three assertions of the false teachers are really just variations of the singular theme. Sin does not affect me. So the false teacher's major argument is, I have fellowship with God and I can have fellowship with God, but sin doesn't affect me. And John's going to counteract that with, yes, it does, and no, you cannot have it in your life. You must renounce it in order to have fellowship with God. And even though they're all centering on that idea, the precise form differs in each case. So he's going to take a different nuance with this idea of sin doesn't affect me. So there's three false claims that the teachers are making. Sin does not affect me. And they have, all three of them have a different nuance of that idea. And then John will counteract that with, no, that's not a legit belief. And it will counteract those three nuances of sin does not affect me. You know what these claims are because they will begin with if, and the three counterclaims will begin with but if. So if you claim, but if you, so if you claim eh, false, then you can't have fellowship. But if you claim true, then you can have fellowship. That's the idea here. So you can see this in this chart here. On the left side, verses 6, 8, and 10 are the three false claims. And they're going to be counteracted with verse 7, 9, and verse 1 of chapter 2 with the counterclaims. And we'll unpack these more. But the first claim is if we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live in the truth. I can live in darkness and still have fellowship with God. What happens in the body stays in the body. The second false claim is if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. I don't, I don't sin. This isn't actually sin. And the next one is if we claim to have not sin, we make him out to be a liar. I don't even sin. I'm perfect. For John, this is not a debate of philosophical views. What is at stake is whether we know Yahweh and can have be, be reconciled to him. This is not a philosophical debate, an interesting conversation to have. For John, if you do not get aligned with the last three counterclaims, then you have no fellowship with him and you are not reconciled and redeemed. Everything is at stake. So here John deals with the issue of sin, how it separates us from Yahweh, and how it can be dealt with so that we can have fellowship with and experience him. One of John's concerns throughout his letter is showing that Christian belief and behavior belong together. What you believe and how you behave belong together. They cannot be separate. The false teacher is like, I can believe this, and it behaves completely different because the body and the spirit are not connected. And John says, no, 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 no. Behavior flows out of what you believe. Behavior reflects what you believe. Behavior is connected to your reconciliation. Not that your behavior is necessary to be saved, 
but it's hard to believe that you're really truly safe if there's no behavior that matches up. And that's the argument that he's going to make. The three if claims, the first if then claim, sets up the idea of what it means to walk with Yahweh, while the second two, two and three, develop the first condition, condition that those who walk in the light and with Yahweh are those who renounce sin. The other conditions will be developed in the following sections. So in this section, John is going to establish his first counterclaim, false claim, and counterclaim. What does it mean to walk in the light? And then the next two claims and counterclaims he's going to deal with renouncing sin. The first condition is what renouncing sin. So what John is saying is you say that you walk in the light, and the first condition is you must renounce sin. The following sections will say, and you need to do this, and you need to do this, and you need to do this, if you say that you walk in the light. Everything is going to go back to walking in the light. Fellowship. Everything goes back to that. So we're going to establish the first claim of what it means to walk in the light. Verse 5, chapter 1. Now this is the gospel message. The word gospel just means good news. Remember, this is not exclusive to the Bible. The word gospel was used by Caesar Augustus in the Roman Empire and that kind of stuff. And when, when the new Caesar came into power, they would send heralds out into the empire to announce the gospel. Caesar Augustus has become king. The good news. So this is not a Christian term. This is a Roman historical term. And the point is that when the Jesus is born in the manger of Bethlehem, the, 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 the angels come to the shepherds and they announce the gospel. Your king has been born. And he will bring peace on earth to those who are found in him. And so what John, what Luke, and what the gospel writers, specifically Luke, but what all the gospel writers are doing is saying, no, 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 no. That's not the gospel. This is the gospel. This is the really good news. And so John's saying, now this is the gospel message, the good news. We have heard from him and announced to you, God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. So if you go back to the gospel of John, John says in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And yes, I'm going to say that a lot as we go through 1 John. And the word was the light of all mankind and the light came into the darkness. And so what John is saying here is God is light and in him there is no darkness. He is absolutely pure, concentrated, unadulterated light. There's not one teeny little speck. No matter what angle you look at it, it will always be light. No matter how deep you dive into it, it will be light. God is light and there is no darkness. For John, this is the word that he likes to use for righteousness. Perfect, without sin. Now that's important, because if, since, Jesus Christ is the full revelation of God, then he is also light, and in him there is no darkness. And to that, all the false teachers would say, Amen, brother. 
Okay, they totally agree with this. God is light, and there is no darkness. Jesus is an emanation of God, therefore he is also light, and in him there is no darkness. They would agree with this. It's that whole fleshly thing back there that they're still struggling with. And so he says, and there is no darkness. Where they would slightly disagree, though, is they're monistic. Now, monistic is a big fancy word that say that there is only one thing, and everything is in that, in one thing. So these false teachers, they're monistic, but there's a dualism in the monism. Okay, so mon mono is one. There's only one thing, and that's God, the God mind. All there is in the universe is the God mind. But it's dualistic in nature, meaning everything is in the God mind. We're in the God mind, then everything is in the God mind. But because there is light and darkness, material and spiritual, male and female, those are dualities. They're two halves of the same pie. And they coexist together, and they must be balanced. The, 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 the symbol that portrays this the most is the yin-yang of Taoism, which actually starts with a T. So Taoism has the yin-yang, and Taoism taught duality, and the duality is balanced and harmonized. And so it's the idea that little, looks like a little fishy, okay, uh, kind of, it's close as you can get in any other symbol. It looks like a fish, like a tadpole, a tadpole that's slightly curved, and the tadpole is black, and then interlinking into it, like a puzzle piece, is another tadpole where the head touches the tail and the tail touches the head, and it's white, but then there's a circle inside the black tadpole that's white, and there's a circle inside the white tadpole that's black. And what it's communicating is that there's light and darkness, male and female, spiritual and material, good and bad, evil and good, and they're equal with each other and sit by side, side by side in God. But in the evil, there's also good. And in the evil, there's also good. Did I say that twice? All right. In the evil, there's also good. And in the good, there's also evil. And everything is balanced. And so the goal is to balance it, not to eliminate one or the other, because to eliminate one is to eliminate God. One, you will never be able to do that. And two, then you're, well, actually, you kind of can get them out of balance, but you'll never be able to eliminate it completely. For you fans out there, I'm going to step on your toes a little bit. But that's what Star Wars is. Now, don't get me wrong. I love Star Wars. And Empire Strikes Back is like one of the best movies ever as far as plot and character development, all kinds of stuff, and character arcs. It's a phenomenal movie. Okay, but, 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 if you notice, especially later movies, Yoda never gets angry at Anakin. Spoiler alert, he'll become Darth Vader. For having the dark side, but for embracing it. Yoda has perfectly balanced the light and the dark. That's what a true Jedi master is. A Sith Lord, which is what Darth Vader is, goes too far into the darkness. They don't ever show anybody going too far in the light, but go too far into the darkness. Well, that wouldn't sell. There's no conflict there, so that wouldn't sell good tickets. How do you explain it to people? You can be too good. I don't know how many people would take their kids to that kind of a movie. So, um, but he has it perfectly balanced and harmonized. And, and that's what the goal is. And right, 
So there, there's another scene too where they're on the Dagobah system, which is the second movie, and Luke Skywalker is getting the training, and Luke Skywalker has to like levitate these things. It's like I can't do it; it's impossible. And he was like, "No, no, no, no." And he says, "You're not this fleshly tomb. That's not. These aren't real. We are luminous beings of light. Everything is light, and we're all connected." And the idea is don't think you can, know you can, because you are all one and the same thing. Lifting the spaceship out of the swamp is like lifting your finger. And that's the idea. And so that's the idea that these, that's literally coming out of this. Okay? It's coming out of a hybrid of Hinduism and these mystery religions, the Eastern world and the Western world, philosophies and thinkings. What John is saying, this is what they have a problem with. They would say, yeah. I can embrace God as light, but also live in the darkness. They, must, they, need, they need to be harmonized. You can do both. Now, they'll contradict when they say things, too, because then they'll say, oh, there's no sin in me, and I'm not. It's like, wait a minute, you just said that. Why wouldn't you have a problem with sin if it's all God, right? That's the problem with false views. They contradict themselves. But... This is what John is saying. So that's monism, and, God is, and John is saying, no, 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 no. God is not harmonized and balanced with the universe in any kind of way. It's darkness and sin came into the world because of our choice, not because it already existed in God. And that's very important to understand. Salvation is found through knowledge and the philosophy. Um, salvation is found through knowledge and philosophy, not through an absolute truth of morality or righteousness. That's what the false teachers are claiming. That's what the false teachers are claiming. Now John says this, If we say we have fellowship with him and yet keep on walking in the darkness, we are lying and not practicing the truth. They're not practicing the truth of Christ. Says they are liars. They're lying to themselves. They're lying to you. They're lying to the world. Because this violates the teachings of Jesus. Even if they said, right now they're saying, this is what a lot of people say, Jesus is not God. His death and resurrection is not necessary for your salvation, but he's a really great moral teacher who came to teach us how to live. This is what Oprah believes. This is what she teaches. She's a false messiah in that sense. I mean, I actually have a clip of her saying that. And then this person the audience literally responds and says, thank you, Oprah, so much. You saved me. I used to believe that salvation was through believing in Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection only. And that only through his blood atonement can we be saved. But now, thanks to you, I know and know Christ is within me and that I can become Christ and achieve enlightenment and salvation. So if you think these teachings are outdated and gone and old, they are alive today very much and our movies, and our music, and our teachers, and our culture. What John is saying is, no, 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 you're a liar. And this is the point that C.S. Lewis made in his book, Mere Christianity. And Mere Christianity, great book. Everybody needs to read this book. It's in my top ten of everybody needs to read. Okay, And he argues, he starts with just observations of the world, and gets all the way to Jesus of why this is the only logical thing. But he makes this point that Jesus is either liar, lunatic, or Lord. He cannot be, not God, but a great teacher. And I use this example with my students. Imagine 
I am your child's teacher, okay? And I teach your kids every single day at school or in the youth group or the church or whatever, your grandchildren. And I'm coming in and I'm teaching that I am God. Every day I make them bow down and worship me as God before I teach. I, I make them call me some kind of deified title. I go around like I'm God. How many of you would be okay with me being your kid's teachers day in and day out? Would any of you be like, oh, I know he's not God and that's really messed up and I don't know whether he's just absolutely crazy or that arrogant, but he's a really good math teacher <laughs> and my kids are learning so much about math. Or a really good English teacher. They have never understood prepositions and pronouns like they did with him, right? None of you would be like, right? You'd be willing to sacrifice your kids knowing pronouns to not have to bow down to me as God, right? And that's what he's saying. Like, no, listen, Jesus claimed to be God. That is clear without a shadow of a doubt. His teachings clearly claim that he is human. His teachings clearly require you to obey him. And yet you're going around saying, no, Okay, I accept he's God, but he's not human, and I don't really need to obey him either. His teachings are just principles, ideas. These are the words that Oprah uses to help you along your own path of journey of salvation. <coughs> yeah, but he claimed that you have to obey him. So either he's a crazy person who's going around claiming that you have to bow down and obey him and all that kind of stuff, or he's an absolute liar trying to con you out of your money in your future or he's literally Lord and at that you must bow down and obey because he's Lord of all creation and you're going to answer to him you can't have it all and there is no room for he's a great teacher but he's not God or he is kind of a God force but he's teaching me how I can become God but I don't have to obey his teachings because I'm my own God no then he's a liar or a lunatic. That's it. That's it. And this is the point that John is making. You're a liar. If you say that you know Christ and you have fellowship with him, yet what you're doing and how you're living is completely contradicting what he taught and how, what you say and believe contradicts what he taught and how you live contradicts what he taught, then you're a liar. And you're an idiot, too, because that doesn't jive. Right? And I mean that in the nicest way possible. <laughs> the NET NSB has practicing truth. The NIV RSV says live by the truth. But both of these have the idea that living out the truth is a lifestyle of obedience. It's not an idea that you have. This is a preposition, this is a participle, continuous action. It's not a concept that you embrace and have. It's not a mathematical equation that you work out. It's not a cool philosophy. It is something that you practice. It's a lifestyle. It, it, it changes you in the way that you think and the way that you act. That's the way that John is using this word, living by the truth or practicing the truth. This is a continuous action of a lifestyle of obedience. The most important parallel is John 3, 
This problem with the opponents is not in their boast of being enlightened, but in their contradictory behavior. He doesn't have a problem with them saying, I'm enlightened, because in some ways John is saying I'm enlightened. What he has a problem with this is their contradictory behavior. To know God is then to be like him. Period. The present problem for believers is that we do have darkness in us. And if God is light and there is no darkness in him, and you have darkness in you, then you can't really walk with God. And that means you can't have fellowship with God. Now this is where the wisdom literature kicks in, right? God is light, and in him there is no darkness. But I have darkness in me. Therefore I can't have fellowship with him. But then John says, but I'm writing to you so you can have fellowship. So then do I need to be perfect and get rid of darkness? But I can't do that because that's the gospel message that I can't save myself and I can't do that. Therefore, right? So this is wisdom literature. But what John is saying right now is, first you must accept the fact that God is light and there is no darkness, period. If you can't embrace that, then nothing else really matters. Everything gets diluted. Everything gets subjective. Everything becomes an argument of semantics or whatever you want to call it. And then there's no common ground. There's no common truth. There is no reality. Truth is what corresponds to reality. You can't live it out consistently. Yes, we'll deal with that problem. But right now we must accept and get on the same page that God is light and there is no darkness. Therefore, if you want to walk and be with God, then you cannot have darkness within you, right? You must accept that and embrace that before we can deal with the conundrum. Does that make sense? Because if you don't accept that and embrace that, then there is no conundrum. And then you're just a false teacher again with no fellowship and no common historical truth binding you and guiding you. And so this is the point that he's making. Verse 7. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. If we walk in the light, then we have fellowship with one another. This is the counterclaim. We must walk in the light. We must walk in the light. This is where, you, this is where the conundrum is, right? But it's important to finish that sentence. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from sin. God is light and in him there is no darkness. Period. Full stop. If you want to have fellowship with God, then you must walk in the light. Period. Full stop. Wisdom literature. But we have been cleansed through the blood of Jesus Christ. That's what allows you to get into the light. That the blood covers you and the blood begins to transform you into light. And the blood begins to connect you to Jesus. Not by your own works, not by your own knowledge, but by the blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses you. That is the only way. The only way you can get into heaven is if you're absolutely perfect or you have the blood of Jesus Christ. And so that means in order for you to have fellowship with God and Jesus, you must be constantly rooted in and bathed in the blood of Jesus Christ, which is only possible if he's a God-man. 
Because if he's not God, then he can't conquer the grave and come back and give you life. And he can't live a sinless life for his blood to be pure and innocent for you. And if he's not human, there is no shedding of blood. There is no sacrifice. And this is why it's so important to understand what John was saying in the first four verses. Because you're either a false teacher now, and you're completely contradicting yourself and completely subject and you're rooted in nothing. Or you embrace the truth that God is light and in there is no darkness. And then you're forever trapped outside of the light and never able to be with him. Either way it is futile and hopelessness. But Jesus came to make your joy complete. And he became the God man to shed his life on the cross so that you can enter into what the false teacher cannot offer you and what you cannot accomplish on your own. And now you actually can have joy knowing that you are darkness and he is light. But now your darkness is being cleansed and washed away and driven and purified by the blood of Jesus Christ, which allows you to enter into fellowship with God. And that's the only thing that will do it. That is the only thing that will do it. Does this make sense? This does not mean that we have to be perfect. It does not mean that you have to be perfect. Whether we, rather, we should live a life seeking to do away with sin. And if we do sin, then we are quick to deal with it. And this goes back to what I talked about in the introduction of what it means to be blameless. Because the idea here is walking in the light. And this idea of walking the light is rooted in the First Testament. It goes all the way back to Genesis. One of the first places we see this is when we're told that Enoch walked with God, chapter 5 of Genesis, and he was translated and was no more. Now, we have no idea what it means that he was translated and was no more. That's what the Hebrew literally says. You know, your Bible says he was taken up to God, but that's an interpretation. Hebrews says, Enoch walked with God, and he was translated and was no more. Now, what that means is, what we do know is that he didn't experience death in the way that we do. I don't, and that's probably I can say that more powerfully too, but because I don't know what it means, all I can say is he didn't experience leaving this earth, being separate all in the way that we do. Why? Because he walked with God. The other time you see this with Noah, that Everyone thought only evil all the time. But God saw that Noah was blameless. You see this again with Abraham. You see it again with Job. When God says to one of his spiritual beings, Do you see Job, my servant? How he's upright and pure and blameless and righteous. And that idea is what I talked about in the introduction, is that, Obviously, that doesn't mean that you were without sin, because Abraham sinned, and so did Job. And so did other people that God says that of. I mean, David is called a man after God's own heart, and you're like, oh my gosh. He violates a woman sexually, he kills the husband, he cuts off the heads of a Goliath and carries it around as a trophy for over 25 years. He extorts Nabal for money and threatens to kill him if he doesn't give him food, like... He takes multiple wives. Like, what? Remember, this is the gray area. Narrative is the gray area. Narrative is the, yeah, but there's still a way to be with God. And that's his grace and mercy. 
And the only way that it can be fully known is through the blood of Jesus Christ. And so what narrative and wisdom literature together teach you is that this is what it means to be with God. But what narrative tells me is walking with God. And so walking with God means that I do pursue a life of obedience. I do commit myself to God. I adhere to his teachings. I I conform my thinking and my words and my deeds to those teachings. But because I know I'm flawed and I'm imperfect, when I do sin, I repent quickly. And the hope is as time goes on, I'll repent more quickly than last time. Go longer before I sin last time. Justify it less than I did last time. Make it right with other people and swallow my pride faster and better than I did last time. And if you're doing that, then you're walking the light. Because every time you do that, every time you confess your sins, the blood of Jesus Christ covers you. The idea is that your sins are covered. Remember John, Jesus says to Jesus, Peter, Peter's like, oh, if I can't have any part of you, God, unless I'm, my feet are washed, then wash my entire body. I'm in it all. And Jesus says, no, no, no. People who have already had a bath don't need to have a bath again. They just need the part that is defiled, washed. And the idea is my blood will cover you. And it's only when you sin again that you repent and my blood will cover that. And that's how you walk in the light. If you embrace Jesus Christ by faith as the God-man who died for your sins, and only through him can you have salvation and the kingdom of God come to earth and make all things new and right, then you are purified and you're in the light. And the minute you sin, which might be a few minutes later after you accepted Christ, right? Then you immediately repent and confess and you're covered. And then when you've been walking with Christ for 30 or 50 years and things, are, things have less of a grip in you, you do a little less often, but maybe there's still other areas that still have full grips on you, but it's not every area of your life like it used to be, then you keep repenting. And the blood keeps covering you. And that's how you walk in the light. And that's how the wisdom literature and Christ come together. And what wisdom literature reminds me is to not stop repenting. To not think, oh, but I'm saved. That means I'm good now. (laughs) Wisdom literature says, no, 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 no. You still have a long way to go. But then what the blood of Christ does is keeps me from thinking, I'm screwed. Every time I want to do the right thing, I can't. And every time I want to keep from doing this, I can't. Who will save me, this wretched man that I am? Romans chapter 7. And John says, the blood of Christ cleanses you of your sins. I remind myself that God is light and in him there is no darkness. And if I want to have fellowship with him, I can have no darkness in me. And I pursue that and I guide it because I want as much of him as I possibly can. And then when I screw up, I go to the blood. Not my knowledge, not my works, not my depression, not my give it up and throw the towel in. None of that. I go to the blood and I confess and I thank God that he's atoned for me and I'm cleansed and I'm back in the light. And yes, you might have to do that 50 million times a day, but how much do you want to know and have fellowship with God? And yes, there's a lot of times you might not even realize that you need to confess your sins. But that's what's so beautiful because in the First Testament there were six sacrifices 
offerings. And one of them was an offering for sins of ignorance. And Christ fulfills all those offerings. And if you're confessing and pursuing God and wanting to know him, then Christ's blood will take care of the sins that you don't know about. Or he'll either reveal it to you so you can work on it. Because what God looks at is not your behavior, but your heart. But at the same time, if the heart is with God, then it will eventually begin to produce the fruit of God. Does that make sense? But we shouldn't beat ourselves up if we can't immediately produce incredibly vibrant, luscious apples right off the bat every single time. Because even the thief on the cross produced fruit when he defended Jesus. And when he had faith. And so this is what John is saying. This is the foundation. This is the basis. This is why we can't say the above. God is light and I'm darkness, but that doesn't matter. That doesn't matter. This is a continuous action. Notice this fellowship with one another. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. And there's that, and that the, the English might not always show, but this is a continuous action. So the author is not worried about the in, initial justification, salvation of the people to whom he is writing. Rather, he is reassuring them about the forgiveness of the sins committed after having become a Christian. John is not so much interested in writing to non-believers who are trying to figure out how to be saved and how to know God and how to be justified. Yes, this can teach you how to do that, but what John's mostly focused on is the believers right now who are trying to maintain their walking with God. And they're getting mixed messages from John and the false teachers. And John is giving a logical, biblical argument for why his makes sense and theirs doesn't. And yes, can you transfer that over to a new believer and help them understand that? Heck yes. But that's not his initial focus. His initial focus is not how do I become saved, but how do I walk in the light now that I am saved? Through the blood of Jesus Christ. Does that wisdom literature and the blood of Christ make sense? And I'll, I'll say it again. Wisdom literature reminds you to not be content with just being saved. Wisdom literature reminds you not just to be content with the, the struggle or the addiction or the vice or the, the, the thing that you have in your life. Because that will rob you of fellowship with God. If God is light and in him there is no darkness and you are saved but you're allowing this darkness to thrive in your life without confessing it, without being sanctified, without coming together in an accountability group and that kind of stuff, then you're robbing yourself of fellowship with God. But repenting and going to Christ and being cleansed allows you to deal with that. And the more you do that, the more you pursue obedience and sanctification, pursue re repentance, the more you'll become sanctified, the less that darkness will be thriving in your life, the less it will have a hold, and then you can have more and more fellowship as time goes on. For example, if my wife is so committed to me that no matter what I do to her, how I treat her, she will never leave me, that's pretty awesome. But if I treat her like crap constantly and never show up when I say I will, 
hardly ever talk to her and never apologize or make things right, are we going to have a pretty good marriage? No. And so the question is, did you come to Christ just to be saved and get into heaven, or did you come to Christ to know God and experience him? And granted, when you first saved, you probably came just to get out of heaven, right? Or Sorry, I said that wrong. Uh, you, when you first accepted Christ, you probably were just afraid. You're afraid of your sin and what it would do to you. You're afraid of going to hell. You're afraid of how it was destroying your relationships with people, right? And that's legit. And there's still nothing wrong with that, even to this day. But that was also legit as a most basic primal desire coming to Christ because you did not have the Holy Spirit and regeneration in you. You didn't have that capability to just come to God out of your own altruism. Out of your own desire like, I don't care about myself, I just want to know God. No, 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 you weren't capable of that. You were a sinner, enslaved to sin and death twisted in your mind and your thinking. You're selfish and autonomous. And so, yes, in the beginning, you did come with selfish desires. And even now, there's nothing wrong, because in a way, it's like, but I want to have fellowship with God, right? But what God is saying is that over time, though, it should be less and less and less about just entering a utopian state of existence that God provides with you and for, for you in some kind of paradise, but it should be about knowing the one that makes that paradise possible. Being in a relationship with the one who opened the door and reached out his hand and grabbed you and pulled you in. Walking and talking with the only one that gave you any sense of hope and joy. And that's the question. So if you're content with just paradise, well then, by all means, Live in the darkness and don't confess and don't pursue and just do what you want and say, I can have fellowship with God because I'm saved. But then the author of Hebrews would say, but then are you really saved? But if you came to Christ for the right reasons, even though they might have been twisted and marred by your autonomy and selfishness because you're without the regeneration of the Holy Spirit, but it was still enough to get you there, but then once you begin to taste and experience and touch and live and hear and breathe Jesus, then he began to transform and renew, and you're like, I want to know him. Well then, welcome to wisdom literature. The more you want to know him, the more you want to have fellowship with him, then you have to walk in the light, and you have to confess your sins. Because that's what it means to truly be saved. And then not only is that the condition for salvation, but that becomes the assurance for salvation. Yeah, I could easily say, but I'm still struggling with this after... 20, 30 years of being a Christian. My goodness, why is this thought still in my head? Why is that behavior there? Why do I still react that way to my children? And that is what you focus on. I'm in the dark. He's in the light. I'm not saved. But then what you look back is like, yeah, but does that bother me? Do I confess it afterwards? Have I entered into accountability groups in church trying to become better? And, and have I seen improvement? Yeah, it keeps showing up. One of the like truly heartwarming experiences I've had lately is when I was confessing some of my sins to my daughter and how it's affected her and that kind of stuff. And she said, yeah, Dad, but I've seen you improve over time. And I was like, wow. Like, 
because I'm beating myself up. You're going to need therapy when you're an adult, and I'm all right because of me. And that still might be true. But, but there, there's a testimony that I can see that there's been change. And that becomes the assurance of salvation. That becomes the assurance of salvation. So this is the foundation. And yes, I know, this is a long time and a couple of verses, but this is going to set the foundation for every other conditional claim, every condition that you must meet. So this is what it means to have fellowship with God. Does that make sense? Yes. 